themes that sweeps through John's telling of the Jesus story is that the hour has not yet come. Over and over again we read, the hour has not yet come. In, in John chapter 2, in John chapter 2 verse 4, Jesus' um, own mother comes to him and, and, and it's at the wedding where we, where we know that Jesus turned water into wine and, and Jesus' mother comes to him before he does that, kind of nudging him into his supernatural ministry on earth. And Jesus' response though to, to Mary's nudging is, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And then later on, in, it says that Jesus said something that really upset the religious officials at the time and they wanted to kill him. And so in John 7.30, though, it says, as they tried to seize him, at this they tried to seize him at what he had said, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Again, similar situation in John 8.20, it says, He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where uh, the offerings were put in. So, so it's saying that Jesus was speaking these things that, that um, were, were outrageous to the religious establishment at the time, that, they, that led him to them to want to kill him, to want to arrest him. And uh, he said that he spoke these things in a public place, right in the midst of the temple, yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. And so throughout John, this idea of the hour is filled with significance and meaning and weight. And so if we're, if we're familiar with this, then, then it's profound that Jesus now says that the hour has now come. The hour has now come in this moment. He says, for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has now come for the Son of Man to to be glorified. This passage, beginning at John 20, John 12, 20, comes right after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Jesus uh, was journeying towards Jerusalem to, to celebrate the Passover feast, as many Jews did. They, they, they travelled down to Jerusalem, to the capital city of Judaism, to celebrate the Passover together. And, and as Jesus was entering in, a, a crowd came up and started uh, essentially worshipping Jesus and proclaiming him the King of Israel. And, and so he sat on a donkey because that was a fulfilment of, of prophecy that Israel's king would come riding on a donkey. And he triumphantly entered into Jerusalem. And people were saying these things, if we read a little bit before what was read this morning. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. And Jesus found a donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. And so in this moment, you would think, well, that's Jesus been glorified. That's Jesus been praised as a king, as the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That's, that's about as glorious or more glorious than any of us would expect to, to see our lives become. It's a mirroring of the Caesars and, and the, the, the conquering generals of Rome entering Rome in triumph after they'd gone and conquered an enemy. So what happened in Rome was you were never allowed to bring your army, if you're a general, anywhere near Rome, except for if you were a conquering general and you came back with all this plunder, then you could march your army through Rome and the, the people of Rome would come out and celebrate and praise you and it, it was the most glory that anyone who was Roman could ever expect to experience. In fact, most people 
couldn't even dream of experiencing that. And so Jesus mirrors this in his entry into Jerusalem. That's why the the, um, Bible translations say Jesus' triumphal entry. It's a mirroring of a triumphal entry into Rome. Yet after all of that glory is experienced in this little quiet conversation where some, some Greeks want to come and talk to Jesus, Jesus says, now the hour has come for the Son of Man, referring to himself to be glorified. Now, if you were a, a, a student of John's gospel, you would know that in John's gospel, glorification takes on a whole different meaning. That glory has the meaning that we would ascribe to it, that, that, that triumph, that, that, that manifestation of splendor, but it also takes on a different meaning in John's gospel because in John's gospel, glory is an allusion to the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. When Jesus says, now is the time, now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified, he's saying now is the time, as Peter read, as it alludes to even more clearly later on, now is the time for me to be lifted up, not just on praises of people, but on a cross and to be glorified. In the first week of this series, we we spoke about the cross being the great dividing line between those who are being saved and those who are perishing. And and it's also, depending on which of those groups we fit into, will determine how we see the cross. And so if we're we're perishing, that is, if we're outside of belief in Jesus, we'll look to the cross and see see foolishness and shamefulness. But if we have belief in Jesus and, and are able to have faith in Him, then we look at the cross and what we see is God's power and wisdom on display. And so John in his writing of the gospel, is very much in this camp where he looks at the cross and he sees the power and the wisdom, but also the glory of God fully on display. God's glory is mostly displayed, most preeminently displayed in his self-sacrifice for the sake of the world, not in his displays of power. So it's not the triumphal entry into Jerusalem being celebrated as king that Jesus says is his glory. It is he's been lifted up and crucified on the cross is the ultimate expression of Jesus' glory. A moment of apparent defeat for John as he writes his gospel is the moment of greatest triumph. But I want to step back a little bit in the story to those first few verses of, of what we had Peter read this morning from John chapter 20. And I want to ask, well, who are these Greeks? This is the introduction to this, this great declaration of Jesus that right now the hour has come, but then they disappear from the story. But we also know that nothing was written by accident or just as a passing thought in, in the Scriptures. Nothing was... Uh, written down without a, a purpose and a meaning and I believe nothing was written down apart from the Holy Spirit's inspiration. So there's something about these Greeks that's significant. Who were the Greeks? Well, the Greeks were, were, were non-Jewish Greek-speaking people. They weren't necessarily Greek of ethnicity. Most of the world in the Mediterranean at that time spoke Greek Um, as the common language and that's why the New Testament was originally written in Greek because Greek was the common tongue of the Roman Empire. We might associate the Roman Empire with Latin but that was for the Senate, that was for the educated classes. The Greek became the common language and and so these Greeks is just a standing word for Gentile which which means non-Jewish. 
These Greeks were were, were simply non-Jewish, Greek-speaking people who had come, as it says in this passage, to Jerusalem for the Passover to worship God. They, they, they hadn't yet become Jewish. There was a process of which those who were Gentiles, those who were outside of national Israel could become Jewish. They could go through a process and become Jewish. So that's not who these people are. They're people who, who fear God, who worship God, but they've not yet become Jewish. And what that meant was they could come to Jerusalem to worship, but they weren't allowed any closer to the temple than the outer courts. They weren't allowed to go to the places where, where the sacrifices, where the worship offerings were given. They weren't allowed to, to go anywhere near where the action happened in terms of the religious practices of the day, but they were allowed to come and stand at a distance to God, essentially. These Greeks, in fact, represent the whole world outside of Israel and and we get this hint if we jump back to verse 19 and and the Pharisees say this they say see this is getting us nowhere this attempt to stop Jesus look how the whole world has gone after him and so these Greeks coming to see Jesus who they really represent is you and I Gentiles who are outside of covenant relationship with God those who of in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 and 12 it says this therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles that's non-Jewish people by birth those who are Gentiles by birth are called and are called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision which is a reference to um, the 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 sign of becoming Jewish which is uh, being circumcised in a religious practice Formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves circumcised. Remember that at that time, that is before Jesus, you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in this world. And so these Greeks, these Gentiles represent all those who come seeking Jesus but are apart from Him, without hope and without God in this world. And so it's at this moment, this moment of outsiders seeking an audience with Jesus, they ask to see Him, which doesn't mean they just want to have a look at what He looks like. It means to have an interview or an audience with Him. They ask to see Jesus. These outsiders ask to be brought in and it's at this moment that Jesus says, the hour has come. It's not the moment that he is worshipped as the king of Israel that Jesus says the hour has come. It's the moment that those who are outside of Israel, that signals, that triggers Jesus to say, it's now. For he came not just to be the king of a single nation, but the saviour of the world. He came to give his life as a ransom, not for just one nation, but for many. He came to be united with those who were once separated. He came to welcome the outsider and call them an insider. He came to adopt as sons and daughters those who were once excluded from even citizenship. He came to give hope to those who were were once without hope. And so Jesus, who 
in his earthly ministry had mostly focused on Israel and the people of the Jews said in this moment of outsiders seeking to be insiders, the hour has now come. And the hour had now come because it was Jesus' death on the cross that imparts life to many. It's Jesus' death that enables him to be the saviour of the whole world, not just the king of Israel. See, he was by right, not just because he was the creator, but by right of descendant, he was the king of Israel without having to die for Israel. He was the God of Israel without having to, do, to die for them. But he could only be the saviour of the world. He could only bring life to the many through his death on the cross. So in John 12, 24, after he has declared that the hour has now come, Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. If it dies, it produces many seeds. And and so Jesus talks about his death in, in a metaphor of seeds and throughout the Bible in the New Testament especially if you're familiar with it there's lots of different metaphors about seeds there's metaphors about sowing and reaping and about the different kinds of soil um, that seed falls on and what kind of harvest you can expect from different types of soil and, and, and here Jesus simplifies that down to a single seed and says the single seed will remain a single seed unless it's planted in the ground and ceases to be a seed But once it does that, it can bring life to many seeds. And so the culture, the, the world at the time was an agrarian culture, which meant that nearly everybody earned their, their living and gained their sustenance from farming, from working the land. And, and so this would have been a familiar metaphor for, for everybody that Jesus was speaking to at that time. The, the idea of planting seeds so that you get more seeds was, was the, not just a, a familiar metaphor, but the way of surviving in the world at Jesus' time. And hopefully, though, it's not lost on us. Hopefully, we get that sense of, well, if I've got a seed and I keep it as a seed, it's not going to do anything for me but be one seed. But if I plant it, then I have the opportunity to have more. But essentially, what Jesus is saying in this metaphor is, unless you let go of what you cling to, you can have no hope of more. Unless you let go of your seed that you hold in your hand, unless you're prepared to let go of what you now have, then there is no hope for more. And he applies this to his own death as the ultimate example. Jesus is the single seed in this metaphor. Jesus is speaking of his own death and his own burial. He will literally be planted in the ground. It is his death that is the one that brings life to many. He died that the Jews, the Greeks, the whole world, you and I, might have life. He died for our sins. He, he died to set us free from the power of sin over our life, as we talked about last week. He died that we be, might be made alive with him. But the point he's making in this passage about the cross is that this one single death this one burial of one person would bring life to many people.
Jesus went on to reflect on this, and I'm going to skip a few verses and come back to them later. But he went on to, to reflect on his own death, and he said, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. And so as Jesus is thinking about his death, as he's uh, speaking about the hour has now come, as he said that his death will be one that will bring life to many others, he, he reflects on that moment and he says, my soul is troubled. The Greek word that this was orig originally written with um, could be translated as revulsion or anxiety or agitation. It speaks of this, this great turmoil within Jesus as he looks towards his death on the cross. In Luke's gospel, it talks about um, this moment where it says Jesus set his face as flint towards Jerusalem, that there was a resoluteness about Jesus' determination to go to Jerusalem and die, that many might have life. But I also love these, these times where we get a glimpse into knowing that that resolution wasn't because he didn't uh, tremble and revile at what he was about to experience. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew what the hour meant for him. He knew he would be betrayed, abandoned and falsely accused. He knew he would be mocked, spat on and flogged. The, um, the Romans used to have this practice of, um, there's this theory that if you were flogged 40 times it would kill you and so um, we read about it in Paul's writing, three times I was given the 40 lashes minus one because 39 was the most they thought that you could handle and not die. So it tells us something about the ferocity with which Jesus was flogged. He knew that was coming. He knew his clothes, pretty well his only earthly possessions, that's the word, he knew his clothes, his only earthly possessions would be divided amongst those who would kill him. He knew that he would be ultimately crucified not just a way of executing people, but a way of ensuring they suffered the most possible pain they could before they died. A way of displaying them in front of an audience so that they could be, uh, be brought as much shame as possible. And so the process of uh, crucifying someone, often men, as we read in the, in the story of Jesus, that they carried their own cross um, out to the place where they were to be executed... Uh, the cross was then laid down on its back. The, the, the victim was then laid upon it um, and they uh, had their arms stretched out and they would hammer one nail into their wrist or hand and then they would stretch them out as far as possible in the other direction and then a nail would be hammered into that hand so that the chest was stretched open as far as possible and then they would nail a spike through the feet or ankles. And so if you've ever hung with your arms either, you know, on those gymnastic rings, I can never get myself up to that point, but if you've ever hung like that and had your, your chest stretched open like that, what you'll discover is it's almost impossible to breathe. And so once nailed to a cross, once they had stood it up and, and dropped the, the pole into a hole in the ground and you were vertical, the only way to breathe was to try and pull on your arms and force your weight up on the nail in the feet 
to gasp a breath before dropping down. And so Jesus knew that perhaps the most torturous, prolonged way of dying and suffering, he knew that was coming. And so he says, what shall I say? My, my soul is troubled. I can assure you that my words would be slightly less mild if I knew that was coming for me. My soul is troubled. On top of the the physical torment that Jesus experienced on the cross, he also, as we know from the scriptures, bore the weight of sin for all all of humanity, for all of history, yet he was without sin himself. On top of the physical anguish, he bore the spiritual, emotional and psychological torment of wearing every sin that had ever been committed or would be committed upon himself. His soul was troubled. And so he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. We know from Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane that that this wasn't just a hypothetical prayer. In that moment, the, the, the night before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed to his Father, Lord, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. This is not just a hypothetical prayer here. What shall I say? Save me from this hour. If there was any way that he could achieve the salvation of our souls, if he could bring life to us, apart from having to endure this, he was going to tick that box. He was going to choose that option. What shall I say? Save me from this hour. But then he says no. It was for this reason I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. It is for this reason, it is for the reason of not just the salvation of the Jewish nation, it's for the salvation of those Greeks, those outsiders who who wanted to see Jesus. It's for that reason that he has come to this hour. It's for you and I, for for those who are lost and without hope, destined for eternity to be separated from God. It's for that reason that he has come to this hour. It is for a God, a Father who who created humanity and, and it says desires all to be saved. It's for his glory that he has come to this hour and so he says no. I don't ask that I be saved from this hour. I ask that the Father would be glorified in it. This is an echo again of of Jesus' words in the Garden of Gethsemane that the other gospel writers would record comes soon after this time where he says, Lord, let your will be done. So Jesus' ultimate purpose in coming was to glorify the Father. So though his soul was troubled, though he looked forward to the cross with anguish, his prayer, his cry to his heavenly father, to his God was that the father's name would be glorified in this hour.
A seed must die to bring new life. A kernel of wheat must be sown into the ground to bring life to more kernels of wheat. Jesus must die to bring life to the many. Jesus chose to die that he might offer life to the Greeks who came seeking an audience. He chose to die that we might have life. He chose to die to bring glory to the Father. Jesus' death on the cross, what has it finished? What has it accomplished? Jesus' death on the cross imparts, that means gives, hands over life to the many. Jesus' death on the cross imparts life to you and I. Those who have no hope apart from Him. To receive eternal life, to receive this life that that Jesus dies to give us, to impart to us, we too must die to ourselves. This is what Jesus talks about in in those verses that I skipped over. And forgive me, please, for reordering the Scriptures for a moment, but I just wanted to finish with with how Jesus said we should apply this to our life. And and so he says that we too must die. This this metaphor of the seed dying in order to bring life is, is not just applied to Jesus here, it's applied to us. That, that we must embrace death in order to receive the life that He offers. He says in verses 25 and 26, anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me will follow me and where I am my servant also will be, my Father will honour the one who serves me. And so Jesus' death imparts life to many and he says that our own death is the the necessary means of receiving the life that he seeks to impart. He says if we love life, we will lose it. Now this is not a denunciation of embracing life and enjoying life and it's Jesus himself who said just a few chapters earlier in John 10.10, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full and we translated that in the fullness of its meaning that you might have and enjoy life and have it in abundance and overflowing that, that Jesus came that we might have a life that we could love and so it's not a denunciation of, of, of loving and enjoying life, it's in the sense here, a denunciation of that love of ourselves, that love of our own life that is fundamentally a denial of God's sovereignty. It's a denunciation of that love of ourselves that elevates our own self, our own desires, our own needs, our own cravings, uh, our own wants above the will of God in our life. It's a denunciation of the heart of all sin within us that, that loves us, more than it loves the good and pleasing purposes of God. It's a denunciation of that clinging to the things that we can cling to in this life, of, of us, in essence, holding on to the seeds that we have, refusing to sow them, that we could have a different uh, blessing in life. That's, it's this kind of love that Jesus says, if you love your life in that way, if you love yourself more than you love God, then this life is all that you can hope for. An end will come... 
and that will be it. If you love your life, you will lose it. You'll face not only physical death, but spiritual death, uh, which is not my purpose today to, 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 to dig into what spiritual death looks like, but it's separation from God and the torment that is associated with that. If you love your life, you will lose it. But Jesus says, if you hate your life in this world, you will gain eternal life. You will gain the life that Jesus dies to bring and impart to many. And just like loving your life wasn't a denunciation of of enjoying and loving the life that God's giving you, hating your life is not an attitude of self-loathing or hatred as we might kind of think about hating your life. It's not a depressed attitude. To hate your life in the sense that Jesus is talking about here is to deny yourself, to deny your desires, your wants, your cravings, to deny you those things as the priority of your life. To hate yourself in the sense that Jesus talks about here is to dethrone yourself as ruler of your life and put God on the throne of your life. It is to consider yourself and your life in this world for naught and God for all. And so for those who, in relative terms, those who hate their life and love their God, Jesus says they will gain life for all eternity. This is a reflection on, on, on the theme that's recorded elsewhere in the Gospels that, that Jesus says, if you want to come after me, if you want to gain life, then you too need to take up your cross and follow me. That there is a death required to receiving the life that Jesus offers. A death to self, a death to selfishness. A putting Jesus first. And so Jesus says, whoever serves me must follow me. And so Jesus' death sets the ultimate example of what following him looks like. And so one of the things the cross does is is sets an example for Jesus' followers to follow. And we're going to dig into that a little bit more next week as we explore Philippians chapter 2, 5 to 11. I want to encourage you to come along as we we seek to follow the example of the cross. But, but Jesus says, follow me. And, and ultimately, following him looks like embracing death. For some followers of Jesus, that has meant literally embracing physical death for the sake of the name of Jesus. But for all of us, it means embracing death to self. And ultimately, following Jesus means this. Embracing what Jesus says when he says his soul's in turmoil, when he's, when he's facing that the will of God means the torment of the cross, it means following him in his words when we say, Father, glorify your name. Following Jesus, embracing death to self and following him means waking up each morning uh, with the, that as our heart's desire, whether we utter the words or not, and I encourage you to be a good idea, I might start doing that myself, to, to wake each morning and say, Father, glorify your name. When we, we face a challenge or a choice in life, to say, Father, glorify your name. When we face an obstacle to our faith, to say, Father, glorify your name. When, when following Jesus means a cost to ourself, when it means a death to what we may crave and desire in life, to say, Father, glorify your name. 
that, that following Jesus. And in fact, death to self means embracing that as the fundamental desire and principle of our life, that we desire the name of Jesus to be glorified in us, through us, and all around us. And so Jesus' own speaking of these words as he prayed to the Father, as he said, what shall I say? Save me from this hour, no. For this reason I have come to this hour, Father, glorify your name. There was a response from heaven, which we understand to be the voice of the Father himself saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Jesus' declaration of his fundamental desire of being glorifying the Father had an echo from heaven, a response, an affirmation, an honoring from heaven. And so Jesus says that, that when we follow him, when we serve him, when we die to self, when we put him first, not only do we receive eternal life, but he says the Father will honor those who serve him. The Father will honor those who follow Jesus. As we talked about last week, not just that we will be raised to new life, but we will share in the glory of the resurrected life that Jesus won for all of us. That we're not just made alive, that we're not just to experience a resurrection like Lazarus who, who died and was brought back to life and then ultimately died again, that we will be glorified and honoured by the Father with resurrected, glorified life with Jesus seated in heavenly realms. If we love our life, we will lose it, but if we hate our life and die to self, we will receive that for which Jesus gave his life for us. Eternal life that is beyond, Paul says, the glory of which is beyond all that we could possibly think of to compare it with. And so this morning I, I, I want to end with where we started. Jesus, when some Greeks, when some outsiders came to, to seek an audience with him, that was the moment that triggered him to say, the hour has now come. And, and so this morning, I want to finish with that line, the hour has now come. As we approach Easter, I want to encourage us as a church that the hour has now come. If you're outside of relationship with Jesus, if you're outside of putting your trust into Jesus, then I want to say to you, the hour has now come. If Jesus is just kind of on your radar, if, if church is, is just kind of part of your life, but, but you, you, you can't honestly say, and none of us can fully say this, I, I get that, none of us is perfect, but, but you're not living a life where the fundamental desire of your life is to say, Father, glorify your name in me and through me and all around me. If that's not your life, then I want to challenge us this morning to say, just as the hour had come for Jesus, for us, the hour has now come to put Jesus first, to die to self, that we might embrace the life that he has come to give us, but not just us, that we might make that opportunity available to others, that others might receive an audience with Jesus through your invitation. These cards are just, just a simple thing, and I don't want to water down what I'm saying about the hour now come to a simple invitation to an Easter service it's much bigger than that but but if this 
is a tool that you can use to be the first kind of stepping outside of your box to, to, to invite people to an audience with Jesus, then I encourage you to embrace it. And, and I want to encourage us as a church, the hour has now come where we can say, hey, Easter is coming. I know you don't usually do that church thing, but I, I was wondering if you'd just come along and check it out and, and see what the death and resurrection of Jesus is all about. There'll be hot cross buns on Friday, if that's any encouragement. I want to invite our worship team to, to come up and we're going to finish with, with worship and praising the name of, of the one who, who died that we might have life. If you've fallen asleep during the message, um, good morning, welcome back. But I want to encourage you this morning that for your life, wherever you're at with Jesus, the hour has now come. So we're going to worship and then I'm going to wrap up in a moment. But if you're outside of relationship with Jesus, I just encourage you to, to take this song as a, an opportunity to, to take that step to say, Jesus, I just want to die to myself and live for you. I want to say, Father, glorify your name. If you're in relationship with Jesus, then, then I encourage you to take this moment of worship just to celebrate that and go deeper in that, to go deeper and deeper into shaping your life for the single purpose of glory.